Thank you so much for tuning in to She's All Over the Place with Kiriaki. That's me. Welcome back. We have an epic episode for you today. The one and only Jeffrey Allard is president and founder of Indie Entertainment, a San Francisco-based film production company formed in 2002. Jeff has produced over 20 films, which in total has grossed over $250 million in worldwide sales. Jeff is well most known for executive producing The Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 2003 and 2006, alongside Michael Bay, Transformers, and for the critically acclaimed family comedy Ping Pong Summer, which starred Academy Award winner Susan Sarandon and premiered at the Sundance Film Festival before its theatrical release. Jeff is currently in post-production on Thirsty, starring Sue Kang, Fast and Furious, and Kira Cedric, The Closer, and Consumed, starring Devin Sawal, Casper, and Final Destination, both of which will be released worldwide in 2000, 2023. He also produced The Alternate, which was released worldwide in 2022. Recently, Jeff produced a half dozen feature films, which include The Night, starring Shahab Husseini from The Salesman, Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, which IFC acquired for theatrical release in 2021 and became the first U.S. production to play theatrically in Iran since the Iranian Revolution. Prior to founding his production company, Indie Entertainment, in 2002, Jeff served as Chief Operating Officer of Bay Views Capital Commercial Leasing Operations. 5 billion NYSE listed company acquired by U.S. Bank Corp and held executive positions in the corporate finance industry for over 18 years. Jeff holds a BA from UC Berkeley. Jeff, it's such an honor. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me, Katie. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, um, you just got done wrapping up a film. That was really exciting. And it's Women Empowerment Month this month. It was a female director, right? who directed The Last Picture? It was. Her name's Emily App. Uh, her first picture premiered at Sundance a few years back and went theatrical after Sundance. So this is her second feature film. It's a completely female-driven film. I think I was the only male uh, producer on the project. I was honored to be on there. We just wrapped a few days before Christmas and we've already hopped in the post and we're excited about our prospects. Great, great. Congratulations. A big, huge congratulations. That's so cool. Let's kind of circle back, rewind, and let's talk about how you got into film producing. You bet. So I started my career 18 years in banking and finance, and uh, I really enjoyed what I was doing. My last position was a COO of a publicly traded asset-based lender, and we got bought out by another bank, U.S. Bank Corp. They shut my division down. So basically, I was without a job, and uh, I happened to be friends at the time, a, a college buddy of mine, Mike Fleiss, created the Bachelor TV series. And he reached out to me, said, let's do movies together. And he was just starting The Bachelor. He wasn't sure how well it was going to do and he always wanted to do movies. And he reached out and said, hey, let's do um, something together. You can help finance it, structure the deal, bring in capital. I've got all the contacts in Hollywood. Yeah, I was kind of naive about it. And I said, sure, that'd be fun. Who wouldn't want to make movies? And uh, <laughs> you know, we looked, at, we looked at a bunch of scripts and I said, it would be great if we could do something that has some franchise value, something that, uh, you know, people would recognize, and that's easier said than done. But he happened to know the rights owners and the original creators of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is back in 2002. So he introduced me to them. It took me about a year to gain their confidence. I befriended those guys, Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel. Are they in Texas? They are in Texas. Yeah. They're UTA teachers, Kim was at least. Toby, you know, recently passed away a few years ago. Yeah, it was sad, but, uh, you know, he's the classic horror director. But at the time, you know, they had done a couple of Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. The original one, they accidentally sold to the mob and they never were paid for it. And so they were very wary and they did two other sequels to that movie. And both of them got tabled by the, the studios because their actors, Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey, were really beginning to gain traction. They didn't want them tied to this kind of low budget movie. And so 
they have been basically ripped off on all three of their movies. And so they're very cautious about who they would deal with. I befriended them, gained their confidence. I acquired the rights. This is my first movie. And uh, shortly after optioning the rights to do two movies, Michael Bay reached out to me and maybe an offer I couldn't refuse. And uh, Toby and Kim weren't completely excited about it, but at the end they were, they did really well. And the franchise was pretty much reinvigorated after that. And they've done, I did two movies with them and there've been two or three after that. And uh, they've done really well. So it all started back in 2002 when I met them. Yeah, well, they're very lucky to have met you because from me knowing you thus far, you have this grace about you, this persistent, what you sell like value, like your vision and your quality, you know, you're like, oh, I wanna find a project with some type of value. So that was a key word, those attributes that you go for. And I mean, I've met so many different producers in my two decades of being in Hollywood entertainment. So you know how it is. There's up, down and everything in between. So yeah, they got very lucky when they got introduced to you. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing yeah, that story. Yeah, and it worked out. And since then, I've produced over 20 movies. So it really got me into the business. And I'm fortunate to have done that and to be able to make a living in this business. It's kind of tough. I live up in San Francisco Bay Area. And I've been able to operate from this area because I love Northern California. I love Southern California. California, but I'm a NorCal guy. And it's, I've been fortunate to be able to make a living up in the Bay Area making movies. I've only shot a few up here. Most of them are, you know, throughout the U.S. chasing the tax incentives. But, uh, you know, my most recent film, Thirsty, we just shot in the East Bay. So I'm going to try to bring more business back to my backyard. Love that. Love that. Through the process of your journey, it's, you know, going back two decades, but what are like the fundamental basics that you go to as a financier and as a producer? Are they separate or are they together? When looking, seeking your new project or when people come to you, what are certain green flags that you look for? Things you know, it's not for me. How is that very clear for you? Yeah, so I did some financing on my earlier projects, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I did some personal financing on that to get that developed. But uh, what I've learned is Although all my movies, uh, with the exception maybe a hand, a couple of two or three, were privately financed, and it is just such a, it's so hard to get that done nowadays. And so the first thing that I look at at movies now, and it's been quite a while since I've been doing this, is is making sure there's some sort of financing attached to it. I won't bring the money to the deal, but I will help close the deal since I have a banking background and as well, you know, a track record of making a number of films that have all been completed on time, on budget and on schedule and have been released. So I'm good at closing the deals, but bringing money to the table is the hardest part of making movies. And uh, so that's the first thing I look for to see what type of financing they have, whether it's partially or fully funded, then I'll get involved. And typically I'm really good at taking even a partially financed movie and helping them bring in more capital, helping them structure the deal to get it done, even whether it's a combination of equity or debt. Um, after that, I generally stick to genre type movies, um, not just horror. You know, of the 20 plus movies I've done, less than half of them have been horror, but keeping it in the thriller, action, some rom-com. I generally stay away from drama because it's just so hard to get them out there. Although one of my more successful movies was The Night with Shahab Husseini. His movie, uh, The Salesman, won an Oscar for Best Foreign Film three years ago. And having a talent like that attached to a film made all the world a difference. That was also a foreign language film, but it was a horror film. And so we screened it internationally. It's screened in Iran. The first U.S. Iranian co-production is screened there since the revolution. And we recently screened in China. We had a theatrical release in the United States during COVID, which was difficult, but it was uh, it was a great experience and, and wow. that movie did really well. Wow. And you were a part of pushing that revolution forward, especially during the pandemic and then everything that's happening with the country now for the last few months. It's been, well, wow, last few months. It's been... It's been for years. Like, yeah. Yeah. But even more intensely, um, stuff started happening. I remember it was right after Burning Man because my sister, you haven't met her yet, Anna, but she has a lot of, you know, friends that she goes to Burning Man with. And afterwards, a few weeks after, it was just like a catastrophe in the country. And so, whoa. So is it playing there now? It played there last year. They were coming out of the pandemic. So there were a limited number of theaters that were available to screen it. We're actually just getting reporting on it now. I tell you, we had, 
a completely Iranian Persian crew. We catered in Persian food, Persian actors, and it was uh, a Persian spoken film. So it was exciting. I was, again, a minority there, one of the few that spoke English. Most of our crew spoke English, but a lot of them were bilingual. I Did wasn't. you enjoy the food, the cuisine? Oh, I, I loved it. Uh, Did... It was some of the better cuisine I've had on a, on a shoot. Did you learn any word, favorite words? I did not. I wish... I wish I did. When they were around me, it was all English. Our lead actor, Shahab, uh, spoke broken English, but he, he made every attempt to speak uh, English to me. And uh, that's one language I really just had little knowledge of. And getting into it, you know, it's really hard to pick up. It, it's not Latin-based, so it was difficult for me to understand. And at this point in your career, does everything just come to you just by your network and word of mouth and someone gives a referral and it comes to you? Or do you get pleasure and kind of seek sometimes out for projects outside of your um, comfort zone? I'm fortunate enough that projects come to me. Some are outside of my comfort zone, but they all come to me. So shortly after I wrapped Thirsty in December, right at Christmas, like on the 22nd, um, I had three projects land on my desk. All of them were funded. So I'm sorting through those right now because I'm in post-production on two other movies, Thirsty and Consume with Devin Sawa, which is a creature feature I shot in New Jersey. And uh, we're releasing that later this year. XYZ Films picked us up for as our sales rep. So we're really just starting to festival circuit and we're just starting to submit now but i was fortunate enough you know to have three films land on my desk i've got another one that uh another producer that's reaching out to me on another project so i just have to decide you know which one suits me best um which one works within my schedule um i guess i'm a little bit spoiled but uh you know i i've been in this business for almost 20 years now so um i guess eventually it comes to you i'm a straight shooter i um hollywood's known for a lot of quick you know talk and spin and I tell it the way it is. And that's why I get repeat customers. You know, I, I don't oversell something. I try to undersell and overdeliver. I off. love that quality about you. I, I love what you're saying. And but you do it in such a ethical, graceful way. Like you're just like really calm about it. Like know thyself. Like you're just so secure within your own choices. It's making sure you're taking care of yourself and creating healthy boundaries. Are there some tips or tools that you learned to, along the way personally for you to then ultimately have success? Mentors of things that people have taught you along the way or uh, a book or two that really gave you certain principles and disciplines to live by? So I would say my business background in banking gave me all the tools that I needed to be successful in film. What I've noticed is I'm around a lot of people that are super creative. There's a plethora of creativity in in the filmmaking business. There is lacking of business people, and that's what I bring to the table. So when I structured deals in banking and finance companies and hired people within my organization and built up an organization, it's very similar to building up a film production. You have a concept, you raise capital, you hire people, you treat them well. It's really important to treat everyone well on set or even offset. And that's what gets me repeat business as well. But my skill sets from the banking side of the business really, really worked well in the film business because there aren't that many people with business background in the film business. And the few that are tend to be a little bit... Uh, quick and swift and aren't very trustworthy. So, um, you know, having ethics and moral have served me well in the business. And that's the way I've always been, including, you know, my entire career in business and banking as well. So anyone tuning in, having some kind of business background and banking background gives you that backbone to come in at your level with your sophistication to cut through the noise. And so what are some red flags? What are one or two questions or things that people would say where you automatically know it's not your cup of tea because you've heard it before, but it might be something new to a new filmmaker or a new producer. So they may not know these green flags or red flags. What to stay away from? Yeah. So red flags from a kind of a deal side, you know, I get sent a lot of projects. Uh, many of them aren't funded. Some are partially funded, but I tend to stay away from producers or, or projects where they are doing a super hard sell on the project in terms of how much money the investors are going to make and how much money everyone's going to make because that's that's far from the truth you know of the the majority of all my films that I've made I've gotten money back 
but the majority of the films don't recoup all the money. And when I have a guy pitching me that we're all going to make tons of money on something and, and pitching investors that way, that's a huge red flag. And I stay away from those guys. I deal with guys that are, you know, morals and ethics at any level, you know, that's what's most important. And those are the people I want to work with. And those are the people I've always worked with. And that's why I tend to work with the same directors and producers time and time again. So who you are is what's most important. And you can kind of see through people when they're pitching something, how they pitch it, the manner which they pitch it, whether they're truthfully pitching it, whether they really have the attachments they're talking about. And and that's the probably the number one criteria Obviously, the script is really important because I do read a lot of scripts and I, I am good at detecting very bad scripts. Uh, but when you get a decent script, I don't know. I don't know who really can say this script is going to be translate into a blockbuster. I think that's almost impossible to tell, but I can weed out the bad script. So having a decent script and working with quality people is what's important. And being able to kind of sift through the good guys and the bad guys, I think is, yeah. is an important skill. And I think I've got that. Yeah. And my heart's touched right now because of what you're just saying, because, uh, and I appreciate you and us being our friendship, our new friendship and everything, because I've been through a lot of stuff over the two decades of Hollywood. So I've been through a lot of bad. That's why I hold you to this certain, I don't want to say pedestal, in this certain, like, your own light, you know, of, like, good quality people. Because it's difficult, you know, because when you're a human, you're a creative. Like you said, you're around creatives all the time, and we're in this creative industry. We believe, we believe, and we want to have hope and faith that anything's possible. But when you don't have the principles and the groundwork laid out, then it's just a delusion. So it's being able to cut through that delusion is what I'm hearing that you're saying in such a way so how to read if that's a delusion or not, right? If over-promising, you don't want to pop someone's balloon from being so enthusiastic about these are the possibilities. But when they're spitting out certain things that just aren't show, it just shows their lack of education. And, mm -hmm. and it can lead people astray and you need to be able to check in with yourself. You know, it sounds like you're pretty on par with doing that, checking mm -hmm. in with yourself and communicating with people. So if something does happen, how do you ethically, in a calm, compassionate way, communicate, not someone in particular, just a situation maybe, like how do you communicate that, like not onset, but offset? So, because a lot of times there's that art of communication, it's hard to express certain things, especially when you're in a creative mode to get your point across without, you know, doing that other thing that most people do and they don't know how to do. And then the, all of the relations blow up and it's like a one-off kind of thing. So you said you work with di the same people over and over. So how do you healthy communicate with these people when something's not right? Right. Like, yeah, I do work with a lot of the same directors and producers, you know, I've done multiple movies with several people. And firstly, you get to know them. And, and I'm actually friends now with many of the actors I've worked with who I've, you know, casted several times in my movies. Uh, you're like, you're one of my friends, but I've my producing friends, my directing friends, you know, you get to know them and, and you can talk straight. They know my style. So they, I don't really need to get upset. I can just voice my opinion. And, and a lot of times I'll tell them that this is just my opinion. You know, I could be wrong, but this is how I feel. This is what I believe. And, you know, take it as you will. But, um, you know, people trust me and they know I'm a straight shooter. So I rarely get into those conflicts, sometimes with newer people, but it's, it's not a conflict. You know, I, to me, life is more important than anything we're doing on set. And I treat everyone, you know, very professionally and very respectfully. And I think it comes across. So I'll say, hey, this is what I think. This is what I believe. This is what I think we might be doing wrong. This is where I think we can do it better. And um, people listen, you know, sometimes yeah. they don't, but it yeah. doesn't create conflict. Yeah. So circling back around, if someone has a banking degree or a business degree, great. If not, what are some tools people can do to get to the bones and basic of the business? Because it's not show art, it's show business. It's a business. And like you said, some people come around and they're not uh, very equipped on the business part. So what are some skill sets that people can learn to grow through that journey to be a better business person? Right. Well, I think the first one, and we've touched on this is just being ethical. As long as you're a straight shooter and you're fair, you know, that's going to come across. And that's, that's one of the most important business principles being fair and ethical. So 
do that. I think learn from people who've had more experience than you. So I oftentimes have associate producers that come on board just to learn. And, you know, they might even invest in a project and uh, they just want to be around and, and, and learn. And so I think take advantage of any opportunity you can to be on set and learn from the producers. If you're inclined to be, you know, on the production side, crewing up is, you know, being on the crew sides, I think very different, but still leadership is the same. So my department heads, whether it's grip and electric or camera department, I work with those guys oftentimes on multiple projects. And it's the same way. I look for guys who are straight shooters, who are good to their people, who are honest, and you know aren't trying to cut corners and, and say what they do. You know, learn from good people and, and get as much experience on set as possible. Yeah. Is there a book or two that you would recommend for someone? You know, I read a lot of the trade publications, but that's just kind of giving you news of what's going on. I did read one book before I negotiated the deal for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I had no attorneys involved. Uh, CAA represented uh, my business producing partner and they wanted nothing to do with it. They said, this isn't going to happen. This is bullshit. So when I was working with Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel, they were actually in a lawsuit. I had to settle out the lawsuit between them. That was kind of the deal they proposed to me. I worked with both of their attorneys. Their attorneys really kind of gave me good advice and walked me through the contract process. But I read some movie making 101 book, you know, on a trip to Hawaii once. And then I was with a buddy he goes, what are you reading? He goes, well, this is a book that explains how to negotiate and structure deals and film making. He goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to get in the film business. I think I'm going to acquire the rights of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he kind of laughed. And literally within six months, I closed the deal and we're going into pre-production. But it was just a, I, I don't remember the name of the book, but it was just like a filmmaking 101 book. And, uh, and it gave me some good insight into the business. And the one thing the one thing I took away from that book, it said, if you ever have the opportunity to acquire the rights to a franchise concept, do a two picture option at a minimum. And I had, you know, I said, okay. And that's the one thing I did do when I acquired the rights. I insisted to be a two picture option. And it was very financially rewarding to, to do the first one and then have an option to do the second one. The first one grossed over $100 million, was one of the largest independent grossing films back in 2002. We followed it up with a prequel. And 2006, and that grossed uh, close to $100 million domestically as well. Wow. My head, I just, I, I just like started naturally like going like this. My head was just like spinning. That's so cool. Oh my God, it's cool. And then on a personal level, like I like The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. I'm a business guy, so I have a lot of business news on. I know it's kind of boring. So I'm more of a current events guy. And where do you get your current events? Mostly CNN, PBS a little bit. Uh, I do watch Fox, but I, I like to have a balanced view of what the left and the right are, how they're presenting news. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and then I'm reading a lot of news online. I'm always on the computer, uh, whether it's reading scripts, uh, right now I'm in tax season because I manage all the LLCs for my films. So I probably have half a dozen tax returns I'm in the process of working on right now. And uh, in my office, uh, you know, I have a computer with five screens. So I'm always back there when I'm not out skiing or riding my bike or golfing. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk more about you being a producer. So I know some producers are on-set producers. They love being on set. They're there the whole time. And then there's some producers who like, will come check in on a film, they'll leave and then they'll come back. And then there's some producers who never go to set. What kind of producer are you? I am on set. I am the physical lead producer. I wish I could just come by and kick the tires. I've done that on a couple of movies. I was great. You know, I'd show up for, you know, on a six week shoot, I'd be there for like a week and a half and they'd ask me questions. But typically I'm the lead producer on set and it is, it is a lot of work. It's a marathon, you know, I have an office. I am. I tend to be more in the production office than behind the camera, but I will be on literally on set. You know, I always make my visits, uh, and I'll be on set maybe twenty percent of the time, twenty to forty percent of the time, and sixty percent I'll be in the production office dealing with headaches, locations, crew, talent, talents, agents, you name it. They're always coming in talking to me. Oh, the talent and their agents. I love the talent. Their agents can be 
a little bit challenging. The agents are working for the talent, trying to get them the best deals. But once I close the deals, it's usually pretty smooth. I've been on set sometimes where like the actor will not leave his trailer hours. <laughs> Do you ever have those experiences where like the actor won't leave their trailer and you have to like go talk to them? Yes. Uh, very few and far between, just a handful of times. So one of the parts of the casting process that I use, it's really important to me, you know, I'll collaborate with the director. We come up with a bunch of names, but having a good casting director, one of the things that they do is they'll give me insight as to what that person is like. And if they're high maintenance, if they're the type of people, person that's going to be in their trailer the whole time, not be part of the team, you know, just really die, you know, just there for the paycheck will pass. And so I've been fortunate enough in most cases, the majority of my cases, we've had, you know, all the, the actors have been team players, you know, kind of hanging out with the crew, obviously taking their time in their trailers to rest and the, to focus and rehearse. But they were always, you know, really engaging and people you'd want to work with. And I just have a handful of actors that I wouldn't work with again. But uh, I think actors know that that's important. You know, you know, I, I guess if you can afford to pick whatever job you want, you know, pick whatever picture because you're a talent, that's one thing. But most talent nowadays, you know, they're looking for work. And I think they're making, they've learned to, you know, just be more of a team player. So I haven't had that problem. Just a handful of times and I can't name names. Of course not. Of course not. I, I, this is a silly, cheesy question, but it's just a fun one. When you're on set, what's your favorite part? Crafty, breakfast, lunch, <laughs> like what, what's your favorite, like go-to snack on set? And So I am a big snacker and I actually, most people on shoots tend to lose weight. I'm at least my crew because they're hustling so much. And I'm the type of person, if I'm nervous, I'm happy, if I'm tired, if I'm energetic, I'm always kind of snacking i'm hungry so i have to be careful so i love the crafty table uh you know i'm always the one making sure that it's what we have there is, is nutritious we've gone much more nutritious over the years but still my favorite salty snacks are always there and then i'm involved in the catering process selection so you know i look over the menu and i think feeding the crew and the cast well is really important so uh one of the biggest line items on my budget typically is catering we try not to skimp there because if you're with someone you know 12 hours a day five to six days a week and you're paying them you know just a barely a living wage because you know these independent films it's really you pay them okay and they understand you know they know what they're getting paid but they're not getting wealthy from that and so i do try to treat them really well on set feed them well whenever possible yeah ethically you're conscious to make good uh sure good foods there so it kind of leads me to the next thing which is environmentally friendly i remember 2018 and i had this catastrophe on set and there was no recycling and there was 300 people on set it was insane and like I went to the production and I had them print out, recycle, and then trash. And then they laminated them and brought them out so people would be recycling. Yeah, because they weren't doing it. And as a producer, and I'm being conscious of the earth, and I was at the Emma's actually, and I saw Jaden Smith and I, I went up to him and we were talking about it. And he, I'm like, yo, can you say something? Can your dad say something? They're not going to listen to me, but like they're going to listen to you. And then I was just watching the SAG Awards and they made an announcement about teaming up with someone, a, a company environmentally. And so on, everyone at the tables at the SAG Awards and moving forward on sets, they're having recyclable bottles and glass bottles and, and, and being mindful of plastic. So I thought that was really, really evolved and cool. And I'm, I'm sure you're already like that on your sets. Just yeah, going. yes. That's come a long ways, but definitely the past five, six, seven, even longer than that. The Bay Area has been very, you know, uh, trend setting in recycling. And so I've grown up in the Bay Area. So we've always had recycling bins. We Some of our crew gifts are like water bottles and we have big jugs of water because everyone's drinking water. It's really important to do that. And so it's it's super important. We try to buy in bulk. And then all of a sudden when, you know, COVID happened, you couldn't do that. So that was kind of a setback for the recycling side of our business because everything had to be individually packaged. We're going back now a little bit to more bulk stuff, buffet 
meals instead of individually packaged meals. But uh, yeah, we're, that's always been important to us. And and the people I work with, they're all very uh, recycling minded. And mm. so, you know, we've always, that's part of our protocol. Love that. Love that. Thanks for sharing. Let's talk more about your actual duties as a producer. So what do you do as a producer? Sure. So I'm there. I'm the first guy on a project and the last guy to leave. So my duties, since I have business background, I will actually set up the special purpose entity, the LLC or the company. I will help set up the offering document and partnership agreement so that when investors come in, they actually have a stake in the movie, bring in the money, kind of manage the money as it comes in, uh, including setting up the checking account, the escrow accounts. So once that's all done, then we go into pre-production and I'll be there with the director and we'll actually start looking at, well, we'll go through the, the, the script first, we'll break it down, we'll have a schedule made, I'll have a budget created out of that. Oftentimes I do the budgeting as well. Next, we go to casting. We will actually noodle on ideas of who would be ideal for the roles for each you know, specific part. And uh, then we start casting. Let's hold the phone right there because casting is mm -hmm. huge. There's so many different kinds of casting directors and some are probably the go-to ones that you trust that you go back to from what I'm hearing about how you operate. There's so many different kinds of casting directors. So do casting directors reach out to you to say, hey, this is my work. Would you like you to consider me in the near future? Like, do you put it out to a couple different casting directors and then do they come up with a proposal? Like, how do you decide the casting director before you start actually working with the casting director. Right. So just like any other department heads, there's some guys that I go back to or gals that I go back to. And in the casting world, I've got a couple of casting people. One is um, less available now. So I recently used a new casting director on Thirsty, and she was fantastic. Her name was Charlene Lee, and uh, I will use her again. So I just use people I used in the past. And uh, she's someone I would go to, especially for maybe some of my non-horror specific movie or non-action type movies. But a lot of times it's, you know, if we don't have a specific casting director in mind, or if the one we want to use isn't available, we'll just start looking for referrals. And so since I've been in the business so long, and usually my producing partners have contacts as well, or my director, we just kind of think about, oh, so let's reach out to so-and-so. We get names and it's just like casting for a casting director, you know, and yeah. I'll typically be the, one of the first people to reach out to them. You, the first thing is availability check. Yeah. And then it's second, like an actor availability it, check for the casting director. Exactly. Exactly. And then you just kind of pitch the project. Are you interested in this type of movie? And it's really important to disclose the budget range. I'll never give a specific budget because that's proprietary. But if it's going to be low budget, you want to let them know. So their expectations are that, you know, what their fee would be based on, yeah. as well as what they have to work with. You know, if we're going to do a million dollar movie, we're not going to pay an actor $500,000. So it gives them an idea of what we're working with. Just like most actors, casting directors are generally always looking for work too. So how did she come across your desk? She came across, uh, you know, it was through my director and it was early in the process because, you know, casting is one of the first things you do. And frankly, I don't recall how my director found her, but, okay. you know, he found her some way and we were kicking around a couple other options and, and uh, she ended up being our direct casting director. And I'm really happy we hired her. She did well, great work. Now that we're on the casting director topic, personal faves of mine, a couple. Nancy Nair, she's brilliant. She's awesome. She's in New York and LA. If you don't know Nancy Nair, okay. she's great. She's, oh my God, now you do. She's so good. Mm -hmm. I'll ping you to her. And then okay. um, Wendy O'Brien is awesome. Okay, good to know. Good she casts me in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. She's gone mm -hmm. on to cast so many different things, but Wendy O'Brien's amazing. Barbara Forentino, she was independent with Rebecca Mangieri, but she is now the head casting director at Hulu. So when you have like a Hulu yeah. project coming on, just sow a seed, remember, like Barbara Forentino, she's so cool. 
Okay, excellent. Send me an email on that. I'll definitely keep them in mind. Yeah, and in the Stanford, so we oftentimes will have two casting directors depending on our location. So we cast our name talent out of LA. So we have an LA casting director. And then he, since we just shot here in the Bay Area, I hired Nina Henninger, which is probably the, the foremost casting director in the Bay Area. And she was just fantastic. I wanted an opportunity to work with her. And really, this was just perfect timing because I've only done a few pictures up here. And so it was great. And she was great to work with. Yeah, speaking of pictures and shooting mm-hmm. in different locations, I know uh, New Mexico has been popping for a mm-hmm. while with the Netflix studios. And have you shot any projects there and or plan on maybe shooting any projects there in the near future? I haven't, but a couple of people have talked about it to me. They do have a nice tax incentive. Uh, I know there's good infrastructure in New Mexico. Um, it's not too far from California, so you can fly in people when you need to. So I'm definitely looking at that. You know, so locations are a function of two things. What is the setting of your shoot, you know? And then secondly, the tax incentives. And New Mexico definitely has that. So uh, I just shot a movie in New Jersey, and we went there specifically for both those reasons. It, it matched the script, but the incentive was fantastic. Where in New Jersey? We shot in Edison, New Jersey. I rented a warehouse. We got a great deal on it, converted it to a stage. And then we went up to the hills, uh, Waiwayanda Park, and shot all of our exteriors in that area. So we shot two and a half weeks outdoors, mosquito-ridden. It was kind of rough, but uh, I'm kind of sensitive to mosquitoes. So I wasn't, uh, I hit out of base camp as often as I could. And then uh, when we were on- go buy a whole new wardrobe, probably. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We had a mosquito for, for the crew. So it was, it was pretty crazy up there. You like going on runs. Were you able to enjoy any runs there? Because I know there's like water and- Beautiful land in New Jersey. So when I'm on set, when I'm shooting, unless I'm shooting in my backyard and I'm living at home, you know, my days are, I don't get my typical routine in. You know, I'm working five days a week minimum on the shoot. I'm first in, last out. So it's 14 hour days for me. Weekends, I'm prepping for the week. So I'm kind of like on call 24 seven. And where I get my exercise in, I don't literally go to the gym unless I'm there as kind of an offset producer kicking the tires, but I'll... Just walking around on set, you know, I'll easily get 15,000 steps and easily just mm-hmm. being on stuff. Wow. Those are good steps. I like those kind of steps. Yeah. 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 I'm proud when I get to like 8,000 steps. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 15,000. That's, that's, that's a lot of running around set. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're getting paid to work out. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I like to interface with people directly. And, you know, it's just, it's so much the communicating one-on-one it always comes across much more clearly. Things can be misinterpreted in emails and texts and, and secondhand. So I just go straight to the person, talk to them. And, and uh, yeah, and less communication issues when you do that. Yeah, for me personally, just my brain goes so fast. And I, I didn't get the iPhone 14 Pro Max, like the bigger one. I got mm-hmm. just the regular one. But my thumbs, they just go so fast that I'm always hitting the wrong buttons. So I'm always getting frustrated. But I prefer just like the voice memos because then you hear the tonality Mm -hmm. in someone's voice. It's clear to the point. So, I mean, it's a tool. So uh, I try not to lean into it because there could be so much miscommunication on the text messages. You bet. You bet. And I people are starting to do that with me. I'm going to start using that more often. I thought that was strange at first, but I do get that now. Yeah. Yeah, because then they're hearing your voice. So like you said, you're a straight shooter. So it's like, boom, and they're like, oh, I got it. It lands. Yeah. You'll, you'll land. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, very cool. And then by chance, have you done any films in Atlanta with the tax incentives or any coming up there? No, I looked at one. I almost did one in Atlanta. We, you know, it was a smaller movie. It was under $1 million. And, you know, you have to weigh the benefits of being in a different state and flying some people out there versus what are you going to get savings-wise. So I've not shot in Georgia yet. I've shot in Kentucky which wasn't great, but it, w- it was actually pretty fun. But uh, in which month? It was around Thanksgiving. As yeah. long as you didn't say August, because I did a cross country no. race there one time in August, like uphill. It is so high. It was like the most brutal race I ever ran in my life. 
Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. We were in Mayfield, Kentucky, which is a tiny, tiny little town. We spent like six weeks there. The weather was decent, just not a lot to do. And, what were you uh, shooting there? We shot a movie called Starlight with Scout Taylor Compton. And uh, it was just a uh, supernatural thriller. Uh, came out about three years ago, three and a half years ago. And uh, I did it because we had some contacts out there, some investors out there. We got locations. You know, if locations are so expensive. So if you, you have an end to a great location, that is very, very valuable. So that's like one of the top things. If you can get a good location, I've had scripts written around locations because I said, hey, we can get this super cheap. And that was one of the situations we had. And then we also got the last tax credit there. Uh, we got about a third of our budget back in cash. That was really nice. Yeah. Well, I just, it's percolating now. I'm just sowing the seed because I'm manifesting it. But I have an amazing location. It's state of the art, never seen before. Like it's just creme de la creme, beautiful. And if it would have to be boutique. It would have to be something very small. It couldn't be like mm -hmm. a whole production it's like too much um they actually shot parts of the wolf of wall street at this location okay. i'm talking about and the scene where leonardo dicaprio is getting out of the limo when mm -hmm. he's with the wife that he's cheating on and she slaps him she's like get out of here and she's all drunk he gets like knocked out of the, the limo that was one of the scenes but i was able to like watch the whole thing happen but yeah so we'll talk about it later but if you happen to have any projects in the pipeline for that needs these kind of aesthetics and set locations because it's so it's so massive. So speaking of, because I wanted to ask you before, we're circling back around as a producer, and then you do the line producing of the budget, and then the other stuff that you mentioned. How is it with locations? Do you have a location scout and you go with them? Do you hire them locally, or like do you do that as well? <laughs> we we a little bit of both. So I've done a little bit of location scouting, but I don't scout it out. I will show up later with the director when it's once it's been sourced and we'll we'll vet it and we'll do a, a tech scout and I'll be there during that process. There are a couple of times where we've brainstormed or we're shooting out of state and I'll reach out to the local film commission and they'll get me locations, pictures or links to locations. I'll share it with the director. We'll look at them together. But in general, you know, I've learned the value of a location manager and a location scout because on my earlier projects, which were very low budget, you know, sub $500,000, our team would do that. And uh, I know how to secure the location, do all the contracts and what needs to be done and the permitting, but it's really valuable to have someone full-time doing that for you. So, you know, we get, obviously we get involved in specking out locations, determining whether or not we want to shoot there, but having someone who's local looking for you is invaluable. So what is the difference? You said you know the difference. What What is the difference between the two? Uh, well, the manager and the scout, the, the manager will typically do all the legal documentation, negotiate the deal, and is at a little bit of a higher level. He's the department head of location. And then the scout will be someone who might go out there and actually be there during the shoot, might scout something out. And I only learned this recently. I thought they were one and the same, but I had a location manager and a scout on one shoot. And he goes, you know, I'm a manager. I'm a location manager, which does a lot more. So he can actually, you know, in New Jersey, he was a location manager and he presented to us numerous locations and he goes, I'm not a scout, I'm a manager. And he said, here's who these people are. And this is what it'll take. Talk to them. And this is the permitting that's required. And this is what we can do there. And scouts, I guess, typically don't go into that much detail. Got it. And then, so when you have the locations manager scout and they're going, and so they initially go, when they find it, they show photos, videos, links to the director. The director then goes scouts with them. And then they report to you and then you go see. I'll usually go with the director. I'm, oh. I, I'm at that process where it'll come to me and the director. And I let the director do all the creative visioning. And it's like, and so he'll like say, I like this, this, and this. And then I'll kind of look it over and I go, okay, that makes sense. And I look at it from a slightly different perspective, like more logistical um, I'll let him worry about the creative and how they can shoot there. I look more logistical, where it's located, what it's going to cost us. But then we'll 
you know, if I go out, I'll go out with the director. There'll be times, you know, where I won't go out and he'll just do it. Uh, he might go out with uh, the DP and scout the locations and then just report back to me and say, yeah, this is doable or not. Let's let's go with the location. And I'll, you know, I have a lot of faith in my guys that I work with. I say, all right, we'll pull the trigger on that. Love that word faith. Love that. Love that. Yeah. And I, I won't say names, but you know, you know, and I know there are certain actors that will only work with certain directors. How are you with working with new directors that maybe don't have the clout, you know, the, all the credits, but they have something amazing. Like, will you take a shot on a first time director? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about the person. So the movie I just did Thirsty, she's a, this is her second feature film. So, you know, she's not a first time and she's done other documentaries. So she wouldn't fall in that category, but she still didn't have as much experience or a lot of experience in feature films. Now I did a movie called The Alternate, which we shot half of my house, which is the Cardinal Sin, never shoot at your house. I kind of just slowly got drawn into it. I even housed crew here. You had insurance on your house, right? I have insurance, but boy, it was just, oh my gosh. And don't ever do that again. But it, it was, you know, it was in hindsight, it was fine. And we had a great movie. That was a first time director. So he's a quality guy. He's someone I said, I could work with this guy. And since then, he's worked on two of my other movies as an editor or assistant editor or our conform uh, and color. So, and we're working, we're going to work on other projects together. We're kind of pitching some other movies we've been pitched on. I've got a financier producer looking for our next project. So yeah, I've, I've worked with uh, first time directors a couple of times, several times, and it's about the person, you know, and you don't always, some are better at the end of the day, you could go, well, okay, it wasn't bad, it wasn't great, but I've never regretted it. I just want to say, when you said that, there's just this burst of energy that went through my body because we have these scripts in our head all the time, and this is the certain president, so this is a certain standard. And when you're around certain people, sometimes bad people, and they're like, you, you, they have, this is the lens of writer, this is the lens of Hollywood, and you think that's the way it's done. Thank you, because you just broke some kind of illusionary mold that's not so, where I was holding grudges and basing knowings and judgments based off of this one sector when I was like around producing a lot. It was that very thing of not giving a director a first shot, not yeah. giving any filmmaker or actor and producer and aspiring filmmaker to hear there's wonderful people like you who actually will take a risk on a first-time director because first-time directors really get the shaft. It's like an act, catch-22. You can't be in the union unless you have a union job. You can't do a union job unless like you're in the union. And it's like, it's that catch-22. And I feel like directors, and this probably applies to different areas in life, but I feel like directors, they have that first-time director thing where it's really difficult, right? So I've yeah. seen in the past where a director will have a project, which they wrote, just pay them $100,000, tell them to go direct their second one. Like, get the movie done, get it foreign, get it sell, mm -hmm. get it out there, take the money, run, have the money, have a backup script so you can direct the next one. But a lot of directors, they're so attached to their first baby because it's like their very first one mm -hmm. that they know. I've seen so many directors actually fail and not get their movies made because they won't allow that because there's so much like right. control over it. So mm -hmm. I mean, that's like a whole nother conversation. But when I was younger, I was, yo, like you're getting your movie made, you're making $100,000. If you're a director or a writer, you probably have a lot in your arsenal. Back it up with your next one. But a lot of times when you're an artist and you're attached to certain things, you don't have that business mindset or that foresight because you're in the creative illusion land and you don't know the business of movie. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, all the first time directors in my Persian Iranian movie, which went theatrical, he was a first time director and he's really killed it. And since then he's done another movie. But firstly, you know, I wouldn't necessarily work with any first time director. They have to have that skill set, experience on set, you know, whether it's been doing commercials, whether they've been in a number of features at different levels of crewing, but also, you know, they have to be collaborative. I, I, I wouldn't work with a first time director who acts like he knows it all and says, it's going to be this way, you know, it's either this way or I just wouldn't happen. I couldn't work with that type of person. Even if they're an experienced director, I might have a hard time with that. They need to be somewhat collaborative. They need to be flexible. And, you know, those are the two things. And, you know, the, the third thing, which is really helpful, is a number of my directors have multiple skill sets, i.e. being able to edit. So if you can direct and edit, you're a double threat. 
because that is one less cost, one less line item we have to deal with. And you know, a million dollars, $2 million sounds like a lot of money. It really isn't. You know, when by the, at the end of the day, with the crew of 50 people, four to five weeks of shooting, all the equipment rentals, putting everyone up, you know, paying the talent, there isn't a lot left over. And if you can save a few bucks, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on an editing uh, or on an editor because your director is going to do both and you're, you're getting a twofer, that's huge, you know. And editors that have background in d- photography is good. Not that they're going to be the DP, but that's really a positive thing. So they understand how the camera works and they don't have to learn about it. And they, you know, are seamless with their DP. So. Yeah. Wow. Those are gems dropping (laughs) gems over here. Thank you so much. (laughs) I love that. Let's kind of get into the nitty gritty of formalizing the structure on the back end deal of a film. I know very little. So, but what I do know is what I've heard through the grapevine is like you do the structure deal and you make sure you're like the first money out to make sure like if you're investing, you make sure you get your money back first. That's pretty much it. So it's pretty much the universal structure of independent films. And and that's another thing. When I see packages presented to me and if they kind of deviate do something weird, I know they have no experience in doing this. But the typical structure on all my deals and every independent film that's ever been presented to me is you raise private investor money and they're usually not experienced people. It's not a co-production company out of Los Angeles because their deals are, are tough deals. I mean, their deals are not equitable. Whoever's investing real money and if you get in a co-production deal, they're going to be at the bottom of the barrel. So I don't do partnerships with co-productions. It's usually private individual investors. They know going into it, it's a highly risky endeavor. And what they'll know is that we're going to make the film. I've got a history. I'm batting a thousand. I'm going to finish the film and I'm going to get it distributed. What I can't tell you is how much you're going to get on that movie. So they understand that. And I said, you got to be prepared to lose part or all of your money. Just know that if you make no money, I make very little money or I make no money as well because I don't get paid anything meaningful until the movie's completed and until you've received all your money back. So the structure of the deal is the investor puts up the money or investors put up the money, you make the movie and every dollar from monetizing the movie on all platforms the day one flow through the llc and you know there's nominal llc expenses paying the cpa paying your taxes but after that it flows through to the investor until he recoups all of his money and once he recoups all of his money and typically then you put in a premium so you recoup 100 percent plus a 10 percent premium after that you split the profits 50-50. So once you as an investor get all your money back in the little then some, then not me just as a producer, but me, the director, the writer, the talent, you know, on my Thirsty movie, all of our, you know, majority of our talent got back end points, you know, department heads, some of them got points, producers, directors. And, you know, at the end of the day, there was like two, three points for a person. So they don't get any of that back end until the investor receives all of his money back. So if you do a movie for a million dollars and you recoup and you uh, monetize it and see 2 million and say the investor's only in first position for the first million, he gets the first million and then the investor will get half of the second million and then the creative participants will share in the other half of that $1 million. That's how the deals are structured, uh, 99% of them. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you so much. Wow. For mm-hmm. making that, it's going to be a, a very valuable for, I mean, me and for the person tuning in. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you are invited on, she's all over the place, like every time, anytime. And you're, you're the female director of the new film. would love to have her on whenever she's ready. We'll talk about it. Yeah, that would be, that would be you great. Bet. So what are some exciting projects that you have coming up? So I'm still in post on two of my movies. One, we just locked, not locked picture, but we just delivered it to our distributor. Uh, so that's been taking a lot of my time. My Can you say who the distributor is? Yeah, so we sold it. Our sales agent is XYZ Films. Yeah, they're pretty well-known, independent, do um, elevated genre movies, and so we're now in the process of submitting it to film festivals, which is the best way to kind of get your film out there, get it known, get a free buzz. And then distributors will actually come and see the movie, hopefully at one of the major festivals. And then, 
you know, if you get into a major festival, the price point of a film goes up, you know, several fold versus not getting into a festival, a major. Speaking of major festivals, do you only submit to major festivals? No, I submit to all of them, but we, we set the bar for one of the top Sundance, South by Southwest, Tribeca, Berlin, Toronto, Cannes. So you, you try for those. And then if you don't get into one of those, because those are premier only festivals anyways, we go for that. And if we don't get into one of those majors, then we'll go into the second tier festivals, which there are quite a few. And what's the best month or two to be submitting to the, the premier ones? So, so they it. mostly screen in November through May. And so you want to be submitting in the end of the summer. You want your film ready by the end of the summer. Yeah. I have a personal project. I told you about it. You know about mm -hmm. it. You were yes, cheering me. Yo, you were cheering me on. Like, this is a whole nother podcast. We could tell stories later, but <laughs> yes. But like, you supported me it was just your words and your encouragement. Like, you were so calm about it. But Real short, they're just because sometimes it's better not to talk about what you're doing. It's just better mm -hmm. to execute and you know, because mm -hmm. when you go and you mention outside of yourself, you're going to get outside information that's just, you don't know. But there right. were some people, but also I was like going through a lot. So I was just healthy kind of communicating because I was like by myself going through all these things. It was happening so fast. But there are people who they're like, oh, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a director. Trust me, don't do it. They like, there are two people in particular who told me not to do it. And mm -hmm. I didn't listen because when you have your vision of who you are and what you want, you just got to really go for it and not listen to other people. But yeah, I have this you know, culture kids. So we premiered at our Basel. I would love for you to see it, but I want to mm -hmm. enter it into, it was shot on the red, creme de la creme. So I want to enter it into the premiere comedy for mm -hmm. NFT mm -hmm. categories and new NFT categories, but I want to um, submit it to there, but we'll talk about it later, but honing yes. in, because I want to know what about the other movie you had coming up in March? It was going to be in uh, Lancaster, I think. Remember? Well, so that's consumed that I shot in New Jersey. Now we're just submitting it to festivals. We didn't get into, you know, the, the one I really wanted to get into but we're now just starting to submit to the other festivals so we are looking at toronto we're you know conferring that right now with xyz on which festivals we should be going after because they have you know that's one thing when you have a sales agent or distributor they have even better contacts than i do at festivals because they are representing multiple films and they have films at festivals all the time so they know the directors of those festivals very well and and they can just reach out if you've got a rep sales agent behind you that and then thirsty uh we have really high hopes for that so we're we're gonna wait until sundance of next year to submit uh so we'll be ready to submit sometime in july august for sundance and that'll be our first major submission for thirsty i love what you just said that in between right there having the patience knowing and sitting and not rushing and knowing you have something and waiting for the opportunity yeah i love that i love that we're wrapping it in here any other um projects you wanted to give a shout out or mention? So, so the other projects, nothing to mention right now. I have three projects on my desk and I have to decide which ones, if any, that I want to step into. Uh, one would take me out to Austin for two months, which would be fun. I've been there for a few shoots. And uh, the other two are local, which are positives as well. And I have a meeting next week. Someone's pitching me on another project. She has it fully funded. And so I just want to, you know, I, I had a pretty busy couple of years and just kind of pick and choose the right thing that's at the right time. And right now I'm a little bit busy with my two projects in post and it being kind of tax season for my yeah. other films that I manage. You know, I have another yeah. half dozen films that are out there. So um, we'll see. Oh my God, you're Keep like, posted. you're so legendary. I'm like, ah! <laughs> You're too generous. <laughs> no, I'm so excited. And thank you so much for tuning in. How can people um, get in contact with you, follow your journey? Obviously, like look you up on IMDb, watch your films. I'll put it in the show notes. All your information will be in the show notes. But uh, how can people follow you and your journey and get in contact? Yeah, absolutely. Through I get through social media. Through, so through Instagram and Facebook, a lot of people reach out to me. But yeah, follow me on Instagram is where I'm most active and post about most of my films. I'm not super 
active there, but a lot of people reach out to me and I'll publicize my films when they're coming out on Instagram. Yeah. And then, you know, if someone's listening and maybe they want to intern or be a PA on set, you know, like starting from the ground up to learn, to lean in, to learn, uh, maybe there's opportunities there. So there is. And I always have a handful of interns on every one of my shoots. And so we've had local uh, film schools shut down departments for us just to donate their their students to our shoot. So it's a great opportunity. And I'm very open doors. So I'll talk to the interns and explain what I'm telling you now. I'll explain to them in person while we're doing it. So uh, the interns have a really good time on our shoots. I think they've this, learned. A- this is great. This is great. And make sure when you reach out, say she's all over the place, sent you. And you, bet. you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I think that would be really good. Uh, there's also going to be the um, the show notes. We'll have all the links. And we also have giveaways every single episode. Because of you, we are in the very top, top, top out of almost 4 million podcasts, which is so exciting. So please make sure, thank you. Make sure you're subscribing. Please share this. I want to say with one person, but there's so many people who are just film enthusiasts and want to know like the structure and the business and, Mm -hmm. you know, pass all that SOS, the shiny object syndrome stuff. And if you want to get raw and real into the nitty gritty of the business in an ethical way, please share this episode with like five different people. Share it with on your social media platforms. In the link, it says giveaways. We're doing giveaways. It'll be a surprise. But if you put Jeffrey Allard in the subject and you tell us that you shared it on social media and that and give us like a couple things of how you added value, how we added value for you, something that you learned, you will be entered into a giveaway and I will talk with Jeff and we'll make something magnificent happen for you. How about that? It'll be like mind blowing. You won't even know what it is. It could be anything. So yeah, I mean, Jeff probably has his own ideas, but maybe <laughs> his next movie he gets an autograph from the director or one of the stars. Maybe you can visit the set. Maybe you can have lunch with him or something like that. It depends where he is in the world. You know what I'm saying? But it depends where you are in the world. But this is evergreen ongoing. Even if you hear this episode four years from now, we're doing giveaways all the time, more and more rapidly. So make sure you're liking, subscribing, and sharing this with at least five different people. Thank you so much for tuning in. Jeffrey Allard, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you, Katie. I enjoyed this. Let's do it again. Yeah, definitely. Would love to. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Kiriaki, over and out.